thank you that your mercies are new every morning and that it is your faithfulness we depend on, Father, as we uh, walk throughout our day. Father, we pray that you would help us in this hour, in the first hour of the morning, to be attentive to what your word has to say to us. And Father, that uh, by your spirit, uh, you would do your work in us through the gospel of Jesus, Lord, that we would uh, be more closely conformed to Christ when we're done here. And Lord, that you'd be glorified and honored in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, question seven, explain the doctrine of the Trinity and provide its biblical basis. Uh, and so that's our stated aim, is preparing you to answer question seven on the ACBC theology exam. Uh, but this is also something that should drive us to and better inform our worship. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 says this, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so, I want to start by pointing out the connection between the calling of a counselor and the study of the Trinity. As you see on the first bullet point there, the point of our work is to make worshipers. The Father is seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth, and our work as counselors is directly connected with this goal. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about the ministry of the Spirit through the word of the new covenant in chapter 3, he talks about how, as we all behold together the glory of this gospel of Christ, that we get to be transformed by the Holy Spirit's work, it says, from glory to glory. And so you might say, as it says there, we become what we behold or what we worship. And so how does this relate to our study of the Trinity? Well, for starters... Notice the Trinitarian elements of what I've just shared, that the Father seeks worshipers and that this is accomplished as the people of God behold together the truth about Jesus, the Son, as ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. So there's Trinitarianism at work right there. So this is a Trinitarian work that God accomplishes in his people whenever we open his word together and behold the glories of Christ, which is what we're going to do in this hour, and hopefully that will benefit you and your ministries as you do that with your counselees. Now, even more pointedly, with reference to how this doctrine affects us as worshipers, as we study the Trinity, we will get to see some of the things about God that are true of him at the most basic level. And we're going to see this clearly, I think, as we progress through our study today, that although the Trinity is often treated, sadly, as a theological oddity, that much to the contrary, the biblical reality of the Trinity must be at the very center of the Christian's life. And so for that to be the case, then we have to study it, and particularly with a view to counseling. So as we study, I think it will become clear how and why this is, that as we see and reflect on and live in light of the Bible's truth of God's three-in-oneness, that we will become, as Second Corinthians 3, verse 18 promises, more closely conformed to the image of the God that we worship and thereby better equipped ministers as we continue the work of counseling. And so that is, as we work to help our counselees by ministering the truth to them, that they themselves, our counselees, will become more conformed to Christ, including as reflected in this doctrine of the Trinity. So the point of our work to make worshipers, and part of how we do that, is ministering Trinitarian doctrine uh, to our own hearts and then to our counselees as we have opportunity. 
So that's a goal, and at the same time, like I said, hopefully you'll end up better prepared to answer the exam question as well. Uh, as you may have already seen in the notes, we're going to tackle this topic under three main headings. And we'll want to start, of course, with the Bible itself. And so we'll look, number one, at Trinity and Scripture, both in the Old and in the New Testament. From there, we're going to look at the Trinity in church history and the development of its doctrine. And then finally, number three, we'll consider the application of the doctrine of the Trinity for Christian life and ministry. And that handout that I gave out, that goes in that third category. It's just something that I had left out of the notes and decided at the last minute to add back in. So you'll have that for your reference. So first, uh, the Trinity in Scripture. Uh, and I want to start by pointing out the presence of the Trinity in the earliest pages of Scripture. And actually, I'm going to spend more time on this because we're less familiar a lot of times with, with what the Old Testament teaches on this than, what, than we are with what the New Testament teaches. What we often find, uh, and this is in keeping with the quote a moment ago about the Trinity being seen as something of a theological oddity, we often find that the doctrine of the Trinity is thought of as a fairly late development within Christianity. Um, for those unfortunate enough to have been exposed to ideas like the ones contained in the once popular Da Vinci Code, a few years ago that was way more popular than it is now, but it was a book, a novel by Dan Brown, which was made into a movie starring Tom Hanks. Uh, so for people who've been exposed to that, uh, there may even be the, the misconception that the doctrine of the Trinity is not found in the Bible at all. That's what that movie claims. Rather, that it was created by the Church of Rome through a vote uh, that passed sometime in the 300s, I guess, at the Council of Nicaea. And that is is clearly not true, and we know that best of all from the New Testament. But I want to start by showing how we know that also, even from the Old Testament. First, uh, just a note about the word Trinity. The word Trinity is made up of the prefix tri for three, and then the last part is taken from the word unity. And that, the unity part, is reflected in the Bible's monotheism, which, as it says there, is the biblical truth that God is one. There is one God, and he is the only God. And that truth, as it says in your notes, is the foundation of biblical Trinitarianism. So the fact that God, and Yahweh is his name, represented in Deuteronomy 6, 4 in the English as the Lord, God is one. There is only one God, and there is no other God beside him. And as no doubt you're aware, the Old Testament is full of affirmations of this truth of monotheism, that God is one. Generally, no one doubts that the Old Testament teaches this. And so the Old Testament is clearly monotheistic. Now, for those who believe the Trinity is biblical, there can be a tendency to think of the Old Testament as monotheistic and only the New Testament as Trinitarian. Uh, and so I think it's helpful to realize some of the ways in which the Old Testament lays the foundation for what is perhaps the even clearer revelation of the Trinity when we get to the New Testament. So first, uh, with regard to the wording uh, of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, which I didn't read. Anyone have that memorized? The Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4? Yes, the Lord our God is one. That's, that's, the, that's the key part. The Lord our God is one. And that's something that is repeated from the Shema. Of course, the Jews actually had to repeat that several times a day. And it's repeated throughout the Old Testament, that monotheism of the Shema. And so, let's see, where was I here? Uh, that word that is included there in the Shema, the Lord our God is one. One is the Hebrew word echad. And it's good to know about that word that it does not necessarily entail absolute unity or oneness 
without qualification. That same word is used to describe how a man and woman become one flesh in marriage in Genesis 2, verse 23. And so, just like the word one is used to express unity where there is a plurality in marriage, it is also used in the Shema and elsewhere to express unity where there is a plurality in God. And to see that this is the understanding, even in the Old Testament and even in the Pentateuch, which Moses wrote, let me point out some of the details and how the opening chapters of Genesis introduce us to the plurality that is in God. And for this, actually, I'd, I'd ask you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 shouldn't be hard to find right in the front. So, uh, first, something that is present uh, in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. And what you can't see in English is the fact that the word God, which in, in Hebrew is the word Elohim, that word is plural in form. That im ending of Elohim, I am ending, it always indicates that a word has a plural form. So the word Elohim, God, is plural in form. But it's appropriate that it's translated as God singular for reasons that include the fact that it is used as the subject of the singular form verbs. So that that verb there in verse 1, created, that's the singular form of the verb. So it's God, plural, created, singular. Uh, So you have, from the very first verse of Genesis, both plurality and unity in Genesis 1-1 there. So lest we should think this is coincidental or just sort of an anomaly uh, linguistically, uh, this becomes even clearer later in the chapter in verse 26. Look down to verse 26. Then God said, singular, you have plural God, singular said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So you have three plural pronouns there, God referring to himself in the plural. So again, you see there the plurality and the unity. And then he intentionally reflects that plurality and unity in his creation of man in verse 27. You have that same interplay. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural. So you have that same parallel. Now, We don't have time to get into this any further than that, but I would point out that this interplay between plural and singular is a favorite device of Moses by which he intentionally communicates really significant theological truths. And most importantly, some of you may be aware of this, Genesis 3, verse 15. You have a singular and plural interplay that it's it's funny how commentators sometimes try to deal with that. It would be bad grammar if it weren't intentionally trying to show the relationship between the plural and the singular. Uh, and so that's very intentional. Moses does it again in Genesis 22, verse 17. Same, similar promise, the seed promise to Abraham in that context. The many uh, being saved by the one promised seed is what's going on in those texts. And so, uh, again, from the beginning, the Old Testament is clearly monotheistic and as you're seeing here, it also has these early indications of a plurality in God. Uh, now, I've also included in the notes some scripture references to the distinct Son in the Old Testament, as well as to the distinct Spirit. Uh, and those just very clearly are speaking of those other persons besides the Father in the Old Testament. But I'm not going to take the time to read from each of those texts now, but I included them just for your reference and for your use on the exam. 
and and just realize this is going to be true in this lecture and probably just about all the others. You're going to receive way more data than you're possibly going to use in your exam answers. Um, and I was just talking with Lee before uh, starting here. Um, we want to not just give you the answers, but really thoroughly equip you uh, both both for your own ministry to your heart and for your ministry to your counselees, and so that you really, really learn these things, uh, not just being able to answer the exams, even though that is part of what we want from this. So, uh, again, we have these references to the distinct persons, uh, and I'm going to come back in a moment to Genesis 18 and 19, but first, uh, look down at small Roman numeral 6 near the bottom of the page, Isaiah 48, verses 15 and 16. I just want to point this text out as probably the clearest Trinitarian scripture, all in one verse, really verse 16 in the Old Testament. All three are present here, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, this is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, speaking of being sent by the Father. And he, the Son, says these words, And now the Lord God, or the Lord Yahweh, has sent me and his Spirit. Now this this verse, uh, Genesis, I'm sorry, Isaiah 48, verse 16, is in the context of God's description that he gives through Isaiah of how he's going to save his people Israel. And he says in chapter 49, not just Israel, but the nations. And so here is a clear indication that the Father's plan of salvation will be accomplished by sending both his Son and his Spirit. And so there is an Old Testament text where clearly all three persons of the Trinity are present, and it's in the context of God's plan for salvation. Now, as I said, I want to back up to Genesis 18 and 19, uh, and this, again, is just a striking example, and this shows it's not just in the, the language, the grammar and the syntax I was pointing out, but actually in the account of the narrative that you see a plurality in God. In Genesis chapter 18, we find the account of God visiting Abraham, or I'm sorry, at this point, no, is that right? He's become Abraham. I have Abram here, by the oaks of Mamre, starting in the first two verses of that chapter. It says, Now Yahweh, the Lord, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And then verse 2, three men were standing opposite him. So you have uh, the pre-incarnate Christ is who this is, and two angels uh, visiting Abram or Abraham at, by the, the oaks at Mamre. Jumping down to verse 20, we read this. And Yahweh said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I, and this is still Yahweh speaking, the Lord, will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry. And so what we have here in the sequence of events is Yahweh is going to go down and see for himself how bad things are in Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he does so, we read in verse 24 of chapter 19, we read this, Then Yahweh, who's gone down to Sodom on earth in human form, having gone down to Sodom, he rains fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Or I'm sorry, he rains on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. So what do we see here? Unmistakably, in the details of this text, we see two Yahwehs. One on earth calling down fire from Yahweh in heaven. Two Yahwehs, unmistakably, in Genesis 18 and 19. So again, this is a demonstration of the fact that the earliest parts of the Old Testament contain clear teaching on the plurality of the persons of the Godhead. Not only, again, in the, in the uh, grammar and syntax, but also in the present and active uh, form of the, the narrative in the earliest pages of the Old Testament text. So that's Old Testament. 
Then, of course, as God's salvation history continues in the New Testament, the Bible's Trinitarian doctrine is further developed and becomes even clearer. Um, And the first example I have here is uh, Jesus quoting from Isaiah in the same context, this time in chapter 61, verse 1, is where Jesus quotes from in verse 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, This is a place, again, where it's speaking of the Son, or the Son is speaking of being sent by the Father. And so Jesus speaks these words in fulfillment of that text in Isaiah 61. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And so in the New Testament, what God had promised in the Old Testament, and particularly as we've seen a couple times now in Isaiah, uh, he is He is accomplishing uh, what was promised there, the Son together with the Spirit being sent to accomplish God's saving purposes on behalf of his people. And of course, there is a wealth of texts in the New Testament that indicate the distinct personhood and the divinity of all three persons of the Trinity. And there's a long list of them there, Uh, in your notes. Uh, And like I said, because I trust you're much more familiar with the clarity of the New Testament on Trinitarian doctrine, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I would point out the simplicity of texts like John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Just a clear, concise statement from, from God that Jesus, the Son, the incarnate Son, is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, And then Acts 5, with reference to the Holy Spirit in verses 3 and 4, where Peter says, when Ananias and Sapphira have lied to the Holy Spirit, that they have lied not to man, but to God. So just a clear indicator that the Holy Spirit as a person is being lied to, and he is God. Uh, And then just examples when Paul in Titus 2.13 and Peter in 2 Peter 1.1 refer to Jesus as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Just all very clear references to the personhood and the divinity of the Son and the Spirit. Uh, So again, many, many of those and many more are listed in your notes. Uh, And and just realize, I don't know how much you'll investigate this when you write your exam answer, but you'll probably find that there's been a lot of ink spilt by folks who want to try to deny, especially the clearest uh, examples of claims of divinity and personhood for uh, the Son and the Spirit. Um, and they just don't stand up in any respect. You know, you can uh, argue with a Jehovah's Witness and probably not convince them because they're so convinced in their own mind, uh, but you can present the evidence. The evidence is more than sufficient that these texts are saying what they, in the plain English, claim, seem to claim. They're, they're claiming clearly the personhood and the divinity of, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the New Testament is indisputably Trinitarian, Uh, Before we leave the Trinity in Scripture, I want to direct your attention once more to a particular text, uh, this time in the New Testament, where all three persons of the Trinity are distinctly present and accounted for. Uh, And this really happens in all three accounts, uh, Luke, Matthew, and Mark, of Jesus' baptism. But this is what it says in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, 
You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. So again, uh, like in Isaiah chapter 48, all three persons of the Trinity are clearly present here. Jesus the Son being baptized by John in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit assuming the form of a dove and descending on Jesus, and God the Father speaking those words to his Son from heaven. All three present at the same time in the same scene. Uh, And in a few moments, uh, we'll reference that extra supplement I handed out, and that's a key text for refuting modalism. We'll get there in a few minutes. So that was our first main heading, the, the Trinity in Scripture. And as we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we find, uh, and hopefully you've seen this, is a continuity in the Bible's understanding and articulation of both the unity of God in its monotheism. And there are some particular uh, New Testament texts that appear there in your notes that pick up directly on the words of the Shema and just the New Testament clearly affirming that monotheism, that God is one. So it affirms that, and we see both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirming clearly the plurality of God in his threeness. So the Trinity in Scripture, uh, unlike what we saw in that quote, is not an oddity. It's something that is there from the from the very beginning. Uh, it's not a doctrine that comes about late in church history or even in biblical history. Rather, the theology or the Trinity is a thoroughly biblical truth, and it's a marvel. It's a wonder. It's a truth about God that should lead us to worship Him for His inscrutability, for that incredible idea that that there are three persons and one God, and He is to be worshipped as the one God, and each person is to be worshipped as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as fully God. Uh, so as I said, I put this main heading first because this piece of the puzzle, Scripture, is by far the most important. Uh, so make sure, and that's part of the question, explain the biblical basis of the doctrine of the Trinity. Make sure you use the Scriptures uh, to support and to argue for your understanding of, of uh, the Trinity. Use those in the exam. Now, moving on from Trinity in Scripture, we have the Trinity in church history and doctrine. And first here, we have a selection of the earliest articulations of the Trinitarian doctrine in church history. And notice, first, I've included the Apostle Paul here just as a further reminder of the historical continuity of all of this. Paul is, of course, part of the earliest stage of church history. And you notice the dates there. He really overlaps and is chronologically simultaneous with uh, the other early church figures uh, there in the list. And notice the similarity of Paul's articulation with the language used in the other early statements. So the first one here, and this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Next, Clement of Rome, uh, who lived from 30, uh, around 30 AD to 95 AD, Have we not one God and one Christ? Is there not one spirit of grace poured upon us? So clearly a Trinitarian formulation there. And then Polycarp, uh, a little bit later. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Ghost. Uh, And then a little bit later still, Justin Martyr, but still in in, uh, the the second century uh, A.D. For in the name of God the Father... And the Lord of the universe, and of our Savior Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit, they then received the washing with water. And that's a description, of course, of baptism. 
Uh, and then notice Tertullian, around the year 200, his carefulness as he seeks to follow Paul's example. He says this, I shall follow the apostle, so that if the Father and the Son are alike to be invoked, I shall call the Father God and invoke Jesus Christ as Lord. But when Christ alone is mentioned, I shall be able to call him God. So affirming Jesus' divinity, uh, trying to be careful in how he does that uh, by following Paul. And we'll see a little bit more about that in, the, in a moment, part of why Tertullian wanted to be careful with that. Also note, by the way, that Tertullian, again around 200 AD, was the first to use the word, as far as what we have written in recorded history, the first to use the word Trinitas or Trinity. And he says regarding the doctrine he calls Trinitas, he says this, the, this rule of faith has come down to us from the beginning of the gospel. So again, not late. Um, and actually, I have right here the direct quote from the Da Vinci Code that the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD decided by vote on Jesus' divinity. And it was a relatively close vote at that. So that's what that movie says. And too many people have read that book or seen that movie, or at least had 10 years ago, <laughs> and come away with this notion that maybe there's something different going on in church history than, than what we've already always thought. And that's just not true. So the lesson is don't get your doctrine from popular novels and movies. And also not to let your faith be shaken by the hidden stories, you know, the secrets that people can claim to un- unveil in entertainment or on the Internet, um, or even in just heresies, modalism and others that people come up with. Uh, that seem maybe more logical to some people who haven't studied the scriptures, uh, those things just don't ha- hold up to the scrutiny, the light of the scriptures, and even the light of recorded uh, church history. So that was uh, early articulations. Um, continuing on in church history, we have clearer doctrinal development. Uh, and we see that in Nicaea in 325, there was a significant contribution And I think you have this verbatim in your notes there, uh, the statement that came out of that Council of Nicaea in 325, that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And so just really, I mean, they have wrestled with this and made it very clear in this articulation, fully divine. Everything that is divine about the Father is divine about the Son, is what this is saying. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made both in heaven and on earth. So very clear articulation of the truth about Jesus. And then you can see the agreed on pneumatology was still a little bit anemic. Uh, and picking up on we believe, uh, it just finishes and in the Holy Ghost. So they didn't, they weren't ready to say as much at that point about the Holy Spirit. Uh, but that was expanded on later. Uh, and just realize that the position of these councils was not that they were inventing new doctrine. Rather, as heresies arose or challenges, they talked about these things theologically. The church needed to determine and articulate in clear terms what they believed the scriptures taught about these things. So they believed that was what they were doing. Not that they were offering something novel, but just that they were responding to heresy and error and theological difficulties by clearly articulating and stating these things and what they believed the scriptures teach. 
And so, regarding the Holy Spirit, the First Council of Constantinople in 381 expanded on what Nicaea had articulated about simple belief in the Holy Ghost. They replaced that with, and in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds, proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, and who spake by the prophets. So all those same affirmations, uh, uh, similar affirmations at least of the Son, affirming the, the divinity of the Holy Spirit and saying more about his function in redemptive history. So there's that, the Council of Constantinople in 381. And then a little bit later still, we have the Athanasian Creed, which dates to around 500 A.D. Now that creed does a really good job of guarding Trinitarian theology from pretty much every angle. As you see in the triangle, uh, there graphically on the slide, um, and I'll read through this also, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but there is one Lord. So you see, they're just trying to cover the potential for Trinitarian heresy or error from every angle, and they do a good job of that. But I do want to point out, you remember I mentioned a moment ago, Tertullian's carefulness in trying to follow Paul and how he articulated the divinity of the Son. Uh, well, there may have been something to that, and here's a quote from Michael Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, which is probably my favorite book that I've ever read on the Trinity. And this is, we'll, we'll see a lot more actually from Reeves in that book when we get to practical application in Christian life and ministry. But here's a quote from Reeves on this, and particularly with reference to this graphical representation, which is good, but listen to the uh, potential weakness that Reeves points out. He says this, Completely unintentionally, this can leave the impression that there is in the middle some fourth thing called God, besides the Father, Son, and Spirit. But starting with the Father, we avoid all such nastiness. Behind everything, instead of, instead of some abstract God, we see the Father whose nature it is to give himself and beget his Son. And so how that is, the relationship between the Father begetting the Son and then the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, we'll see that a little bit more as we go along. But that is the more biblical way to speak about it and to conceptualize it. Now, all of the errors that this protects us from, we do want to be protected from them. Just realize that there's not some fourth thing in the middle, that there's this eternal relationship and eternal progression. Father begets the Son, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit. The Spirit proceeds from them. Okay, so I wanted to start with the more ancient history, just to give you a sense for how and when the language of Trinitarian doctrine took shape. Uh, and so hopefully you've seen clearly, uh, and hopefully this will become even clearly, clearer as you dig through these notes as you write your exam, that the doctrine of the Trinity has its foundation, first of all, deep in Scripture, even in the earliest texts of the Old Testament, and then in the most ancient statements of Trinitarian truth, including the Apostle Paul and then the men who came immediately in the Apostles' wake.
Um, so it's it's very ancient, all the way back to the first pages of Scripture, and really there's continuity all the way through these uh, early articulations, clear articulations of the God, the, uh, the theology of the Trinity. And so again, even if you don't use all of this information in your exam answer, hopefully it helps you to see how consistent all of this truth is, both in Scripture and from the earliest years of the church's history up to when the language used to describe Trinitarian truth became as systematic and as precise as it is today. Uh, and speaking of precise and systematic language, uh, you're probably in your exam answer going to find helpful the straightforward precision uh, and just simplicity of a modern definition like the one found in John Frame's systematic theology, which he organizes according to five assertions that God is one, God is three, the three persons are each fully God, that each of the persons is distinct from the others, and that the three are related to one another eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So see that all of the key elements are there. God's unity, monotheism, which is the foundation of biblical Trinitarianism, God's threeness, the full divinity of each of the three persons, but also the distinctness of the three, that each person is distinct from the others, and then the eternal relationship of the three in order. And notice it starts with the Father, and the Son is begotten from the Father, and then the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So that's the Trinity in church history and doctrine. Uh, And again, uh, hopefully it's just really clear how much continuity there is here, all the way from the first pages of Genesis, all the way up to John Frame and his systematic theology. There's just this constant continuity uh, and further development, further precision, but it's all teaching the same thing. Now, because we want to pursue this doctrine specifically as biblical counselors, that is, we want to see it not just in the glory of its indicatives, but in the glory of what it should do in and for and through worshipers, we're going to look, number three, at the Trinity in Christian life and ministry. Uh, Now, admittedly, this final main heading probably isn't as important to the exam, um, although it wouldn't be bad to include something brief uh, on this, but what the graders are probably looking for was mostly covered under the first two headings. Um, But like I said up front, we want this truth about God, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, which is an essential truth about God, maybe the essential truth about God. We want it to actually lead us and our counselees to look more like God so that we can be, as God wants us to be increasingly, those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And so let's spend a little time on this, on implications of this doctrine for our lives and ministries. Uh, Now the first part, as you see on the slide uh, and in the handout that I gave you at the beginning of class here, uh, this section, the negative side of practical application, uh, if any of this would be included on the exam, probably this would be. Uh, because it has to do with using scripture to refute common doctrinal errors. So you could consider, especially if you found in your counseling ministry the need to refute uh, doctrinal errors relative to the Trinity, it could be useful to include some of this. Uh, So negatively, refuting refuting Trinitarian errors. Uh, And I've just listed some of the most, what was it, four of the most common Trinitarian errors. First of all, modalism, which teaches that the three persons of the Trinity are different modes of the Godhead. Adherence to to modalism, which include things like oneness Pentecostalism. Uh, People who adhere to this believe that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct personalities, but different modes of God's self-revelation. 
Uh, and as you might think, uh, those texts in particular that refer to all three members of the Trinity being present in the same scene, uh, particularly at Jesus' baptism, are effective ways to refute that error. Uh, additionally, you know, the texts that indicate the full personhood and divinity of each of the persons of the Trinity. Secondly, tritheism. Tritheism teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three independent divine beings, three separate gods who share the same substance. This is a common mistake because of a misunderstanding of the term persons in defining the the Trinity. So realize, and, and Pastor Dan at our church likes to say that words creak and groan as they try to explain the glories of biblical truth. And persons is a good word, uh, but occasionally the words that we use just put the wrong idea in someone's head. And so that's an example uh, that uh, all three, rather than just being persons, divine persons, who uh, each is fully God and there is one God, uh, the idea that there are three separate gods is tritheism. Uh, and so, again, a way of refuting that would be the Bible's strict monotheism starting with Deuteronomy 6.4 and every other affirmation of that truth, that God is one. There is only one God throughout all of Scripture, as we saw. Partialism, number three, teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are components of the one God. This leads to the belief that each of the persons of the Trinity is only part God, only becoming fully God when they come together. Uh, And this is refuted by the texts that teach that each person is God. Each person is fully divine. He's not lacking in divinity until he comes together with the other two persons. Each person is fully divine. And hopefully you see how thinking about the errors actually pushes our direction, our our minds in the direction of thinking about things biblically. So in that sense, the errors can actually be helpful as we think through safeguards of the doctrine. Finally, and this one actually may be uh, the most common, at least with people who come to our doors trying to convince us of Something else, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in this, Arianism, uh, which teaches that the pre-existent Christ was the first and greatest of God's creatures, but it denies his fully divine status. The Arian controversy was of major importance in the development of Christology during the 4th century and was directly addressed definitely in the Nicene Creed, which we read together earlier. It also, by the way, uh, claims that the Holy Spirit is not a person but more of a force. Uh, which is an error probably held elsewhere as well. And so, again, texts that teach very clearly and directly the full personhood and the divinity of the Son and the Holy Spirit, texts, again, that span the scriptures, will refute Arianism. Yeah. Yeah. So theologically, we speak of that in terms like eternal generation. And you have to be really careful with analogies with the Trinity. Um, but I think I'm on safe ground to follow Piper in this. And it's it's compelling, and I think it holds true. You don't want to take it too far. But when you think about the sun, S-U-N, and the radiance of its glory, its its light and its heat, has the sun ever existed without the radiance of its glory? S-U-N. And the answer is no. For as long as the sun has existed, it has generated that radiance and that glory. Everything that you see about the sun, S-U-N, 
is a radiation or a uh, representation of what the sun is in its essence. Now, again, you don't want to take that too far, but that's, that is, I mean, Hebrews 1 especially speaks in that kind of language, that the sun is the radiance of the glory of the Father. And as long as there has been the Father, which is eternal, right, there has been the radiance of his glory, who is the sun. Does that make sense? And so then, and, and you can get way too off into philosophical theology with this, but um, when you see a text, and this is, I want, you want to be textual with this, and then maybe use some words, uh, like we use persons, just words that maybe don't appear in the text. We can think about ways to explain this to our own minds. When it says that the Father and the Son love each other in the fellowship of the Spirit, uh, that as they express their love for each other, the Father for the radiance of his glory and the Son for the Father whose radiance he radiates, that their affection for each other is the Spirit. Um, Jonathan Edwards uh, is the one who's really, he did a lot of work describing that in writing. And I think he probably gets a little bit too philosophical at times in that. But in terms of really trying to tease it out for our minds, that's, that's, that's how I like to think about it. Uh, and so there is a priority there. You have the Father radiating his glory. The Son is the radiance of his glory. And as they enjoy one another in the fellowship of the Spirit, you have the Spirit's role is proceeding from the Father and from the Son. Is that Hopefully I didn't <laughs> muddle that up, but yeah. That's, I, and that's, just, again, you'll see that as we get to the Michael Reeves material in the positive side of practical, practical application. And that is just one of the most glorious things to think about with regard to Trinitarian theology is that eternal, glorious fellowship that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoy and by creation and salvation bring us into the enjoyment of that eternal fellowship. It's a, it's a glorious thing. It's getting a little bit ahead of where we are. Um, so we just finished up the negative side of the ministry uh, application of Trinitarian doctrine. Uh, and just realize, as I mentioned earlier, that it was because of doctrinal errors like these that the church worked so hard in its early years to refine and articulate its understanding of Trinitarian doctrine. And so we should be thankful for that. You know, just thankful for the work that was done uh, from 325 A.D. through the Council of Constantinople and even the Athanasian Creed to really make these things clear. And then men like um, John Frame, who put it in their systematic theology and really give us simple terms by which try to try to understand and to guard our understanding of a complex doctrine. Uh, so let's see here. Uh, all of this is going to prepare you uh, for what you're going to face in the counseling room, including in you know potentially seeing some of those errors come up. And it may not be that someone is a oneness Pentecostal, but somehow they think of the Holy Spirit as more of a feeling that comes on them or an impression or a force. Uh, and Trinitarian doctrine is going to be part of what will help you just give them a, a gentle correction on that and help them to see uh, the role of each person of the Trinity more clearly uh, as it's delineated biblically. So that's the negative side of application. This part, I think, is much more exciting and fun and just a joy, uh, glory to think about. Um, and, and let me just mention again, I've mentioned this a couple times, but, and I, I'm guessing they probably have it in the bookstore because I think it's Terry Enza's favorite book, Delighting in the Trinity. 
Um, but if you don't have a copy of that, it's it's actually a pretty quick read, uh, really accessible, and makes these truths just sort of jump off the page. It's really good. So a lot of what I have to say, uh, I kind of started thinking about and putting into these notes after having read uh, Reeves's book. Uh, so on the positive side of the application of Trinitarian doctrine in the life of the believer, uh, we start here with the Father. That uh, small letter A there, before creation, God was a father loving his son. And this essentially, and as we talked about a little bit earlier, is who God is essentially and eternally. God is always a father loving his son. And so as we walk through this, I think you'll see that this uh, reflects that carefulness of Tertullian and uh, Reeves saying we want to follow him in that when we're really trying to understand each of the persons and how they relate to the other. This sort of nuanced, more biblical, progressive idea is better than that shield, which is more a matter of protecting against heresy. So this starts with the father. God is always a father loving his son. And one of the clearest places we find this truth revealed in Scripture is in Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died. John chapter 17 records that prayer in full. Verse 5, he says this, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. So we get invited into this eternal glory and fellowship and love that God has enjoyed in himself for eternity. So he wants us to be with him in this so that they may see, he says, my glory, which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, what we gather from this is that God, the father, who he is essentially, he is essentially life giving for all of eternity, he has given life to his son. He was giving life or loving eternally before he ever created. And so, again, you don't want to get from this the idea that the son is anything less than eternal. And 100% God, for all eternity, he is being eternally begotten, eternally generated by the father. And there's this eternal love. So God is always a father loving his son. And while we find Trinitarian truth throughout the Old Testament and texts noted earlier, including the divinity and the personhood and work of the Holy Spirit, we find later in Scripture similarly clear articulations of the Spirit's participation in the fellowship with, the, with which the Father and Son have enjoyed for all eternity. And this is what I was explaining a moment ago. For example, in Paul's Trinitarian benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, he says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And likewise, when Jesus rejoices in the effective ministry of his disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, it says at that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. So he rejoices greatly in the Spirit as he speaks of his just joy to the Father at the the ministry that they had planned for eternity of salvation is coming to pass there in the narrative in Luke chapter 10. In commenting on this reality, Michael Reeves writes this, 
It is all deeply personal. The Spirit stirs up the delight of the Father in the Son and the delight of the Son in the Father, inflaming their love and so binding them together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And so, what do we gather from this? Rich theological and practical truth. As it says next to small letter C in your outline, the God of the Bible is a God who radiates out. He is a God who shares. Any other God has a problem. Either he wouldn't create or he would create in order to serve himself. And Reeves illustrates this truth with, with, with words ascribed to the false Babylonian God Marduk. And you have these in the notes also. He writes, the Babylonian God Marduk puts it bluntly. He, this God of the Babylonian's imagination, he will create humankind so that the gods can have slaves. Now, does that ring a bell? Scripture actually accuses us of tending to conceive of God in this way. Listen to this from Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, verse 24. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. So just that conception on that third uh, steward who conceives of his master as being a harsh slave driver. And the story of the master represents God. Similarly, similarly, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. And so that's how we all are naturally, as a spirit of slavery, servile fear of God. That's our natural conception. We have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so again, what is our natural conception of God? Like the Babylonians, we tend to relate to him with servile fear, as if he had created us and even as if he had saved us so that we could operate as his indentured slaves, as if he made us so that he could take from us what he needs and wants from us. How different is that conception of God, the conception that we all have naturally, from the one we saw a moment ago? That God, in his essence, who he is for all eternity, is a father loving his son in the fellowship of the Spirit. This is who he is essentially and eternally. He is eternally happy, as Paul says. He's the eternally blessed or happy God. He exists in eternal, self-giving, and glorious reciprocal joy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the point of creation is decidedly not to give God slaves from whom he can take. Rather, on the contrary, the point of creation is that the love of the Father and the Son through, through the fellowship of the Spirit might be shared. That's the point of both creation and salvation, it is not that God could take from us and make us his slaves, but that he could share his eternal love, and self-giving joy. And so, you see, continuing in your notes, creation itself is a Trinitarian endeavor by which, as Sinclair Ferguson says, the Son is the Word, the communication of the Father to creation, able to be beheld by men. The Spirit proceeds from the Son, effectively demonstrating and communicating, according to the Word, the glory of the Father in the Son to creation. 
And then, as Reeves writes, with similarly biblical language, while the Son establishes and upholds all things, Hebrews 1.3, the Spirit perfects or completes the work of creation. This is clear from the testimony of Scripture from first to last, that God created as the overflow of his love to share his joy and goodness with creation, and most pointedly to share his joy and goodness and love with and through man, who alone is made in his image. And you'll see a lot of overlap. Actually, I'm doing later on today anthropology for you guys, and you'll see a lot of overlap between the image of God in man and the truths that we're seeing here. So that was how and why he created us. But, small letter E, rather than radiating love and goodness outward as a beautiful reflection of our creator, the love of men soon turned inward. Since the fall, when our first parents and we with them chose to serve our lusts and seek our own way, since then we have loved and worshipped self supremely. And you may already be thinking this. Here is the root of so many of the troubles that lead precious souls to seek out biblical counseling. Why do men and women and boys and girls find it pretty much impossible to relate to other people without sinning? Why do we have difficulty relating to our jobs and our possessions and our leaders and our circumstances without sinning? The answer is because of this original inversion. We were created to be like God, to radiate his goodness and his love, his self-giving outward. We were created to spread life and blessing to one another and to the whole creation. And instead, the Bible teaches, from the moment of our inward turn, we have spread death and corruption to one another and to the whole creation. And so what is the solution to this? Namely, to see the glory of our Trinitarian God in his Trinitarian gospel. You see, unlike the gods of our own imaginations, who like us only serve themselves in an endless cycle of unsatisfied lusts, we and our counselees must turn our eyes to the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who, when we had become unlovable in every sense of that word, saw fit to execute, to bring to pass his eternal and supremely self-giving plan of redemption. The Father sent the Son, whom he loves eternally and perfectly, to do what only he could do, to stand in the place of his created sons and daughters who had gone astray, to take on himself the eternal penalty that only he could take and still live, so that we could be forgiven and made clean so that he could send the Holy Spirit to include us, even as Jesus prayed for us in the garden in John 17, so that he could include us both now and forever in the eternal, perfect, loving, all-satisfying fellowship that he has enjoyed and continues to enjoy and will enjoy with us for all eternity. It's glorious, isn't it? The positive application of Trinitarian doctrine. Now, uh, as you may be noticing, and I've mentioned already, there's a lot in the notes that we didn't cover, uh, and we don't have much time for questions, but I'll be here for a little bit after if you, if you want to ask some questions. Uh, let me close by trying to tie together the big picture for us. In answering your exam question, you're going to want to start with the biblical foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity, both the Bible's monotheism and what it teaches about the three distinct divine persons, and from there, move to the precise articulations and definitions of systematic theology. So start with the biblical data and move to the precise definitions that are supported by the biblical data, and then perhaps include some thoughts on practical application 
in the counseling room, including refuting common heresies with regard to the Trinity. So that's the exam. But again, uh, more importantly, I would say, consider for yourself and for those that you get to minister to how the truth of the Trinity, God's eternal existence is fully content and a fully satisfied giver of himself teaches us about his heart behind both creation and salvation. And let that lead you. Let it lead you and then teach your counselees to let it lead them away from the false loves and false thoughts that always call out to us and back to the love that God made us for. Let's uh, have a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for the glorious truths in your word. And Father, we thank you for preserving these truths in scripture and for giving the church uh, men who have made it a pursuit, made it even a lifelong endeavor, some of them, to carefully articulate and preserve these uh, great and rich truths. Father, I pray that you would minister these truths to us, send your spirit to seal them to our hearts and cause us as we reflect on them, as we reflect in your glory uh, through the Son. Father, help us as you've promised to be more closely conformed to his image and also better equipped Uh, counselors, ministers of your word, as we have opportunity to bless your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.